St. Louis Public Radio's The Gateway gives you the day's news first thing every weekday morning. From the ever-evolving relationship between St. Louis City and County to developments in the Missouri and Illinois state capitals and reports from our correspondents in Rolla and the Metro East. We put it all in a roughly 10-minute package with clarity and context. Download The Gateway wherever you get podcasts. Welcome back to the Wake Up to Politics podcast. I'm your host, Gabe Fleischer. This is our last episode of 2020, and we covered a lot of ground this season, talking about a bunch of different processes and systems that drive American politics. But I wanted to see if any of you still had questions that I might be able to answer about those systems and others that are important in our political process. So I put a call out to my listeners, and we got a bunch of great questions that got at some really important topics in American politics. Will it be replaced with a popular vote? How would that happen? What are the benefits and drawbacks to that type of voting? And saying that all postal ballots received after election day should be disqualified. Biden choosing a Republican for his cabinet. What strategies do you think will be most important in getting younger voters to the polls? Welcome to our mailbag episode. We got a lot of great messages from listeners, so let's dive in and start answering some questions. This question is about the Biden administration. In our most recent episode, we touched on the presidential transition and talked about what to expect as President-elect Joe Biden begins to name his cabinet. Hi, this is Steve Harrell calling from De Pere, Wisconsin. Greetings, Gabe. I have a question that I wonder if you could pursue on the podcast. And I'm very interested in incoming presidents choosing cabinet members from opposing parties. I know that um, Barack Obama chose a Secretary of Defense, um, former Senator Hagel. And I'm wondering if you have picked up anything on the possibility of President-elect Biden choosing a Republican for his cabinet, for a cabinet position. Thanks. Hey, Steve, that's a great question. There is, as you said, a long history of presidents crossing party lines to pick members of of the opposition party for their cabinet. Um, Like like Steve said, former Republican Senator Chuck Hagel served in the Obama cabinet as defense secretary. Obama also had Republican Bob Gates um, also lead the Pentagon during his administration, as well as former Republican Congressman Ray LaHood, who served as transportation secretary. George W. Bush had a former Democratic congressman, Norman Mineta, who led the transportation department. Um, there, there's really there's a, a long history going back decades and decades of presidents who have, who have appointed um, oftentimes members of Congress or governors of the other party and given them cabinet spots. Notably, Donald Trump did break that trend because he did not nominate any Democratic politicians to his cabinet um, in his four years, which did break with tradition. He did give some prominent jobs to former Democratic donors, Gary Cohn, the former director of the National Economic Council as one, but he didn't pick any Democratic office holders um, for his cabinet. And likewise, there aren't many uh, Republican office holders who are being discussed as possible Biden cabinet appointees, but but there certainly are a few different Republican names that have been thrown about um, that, that could end up in the administration. Many of them were surrogates of Biden's um, because he did have quite a few kind of prominent Republican backers who campaigned for him in 2020. As of this recording in early December, he hasn't appointed any yet. Um, probably the one with the most speculation is Meg Whitman, 
who's the former CEO of Hewlett-Packard. She was also the CEO of the short-lived uh, Quibi app. And um, there's a lot of speculation about her being appointed as Commerce Secretary. She is a lifelong Republican who is a GOP gubernatorial nominee in California in 2010. Um, so that would be a cross-party pick. That's probably the one with the most buzz right now. There's also been some speculation about former Ohio Governor John Kasich, who, of course, sought the Republican presidential nomination in 2016. He's been discussed for a cabinet spot. Um, there's also Cindy McCain, who's the widow of former Republican Senator John McCain, um, who's been talked about as a potential ambassador to the United Kingdom or, or for another um, kind of administration role, probably not a cabinet job, but but some sort of diplomatic role or something in the administration. Um, so, so those are some of the names that, that are talked about most often. It does seem pretty likely um, that Biden will pick someone um, from, from the Republican Party to, to some sort of job in the administration. Obviously, a big part of his campaign was about um, unity and bringing the parties together. So, so that would certainly fit um, with that messaging. And, and also, it's worth noting, um, all three of those people I just mentioned, Kasich, McCain, and Whitman, all spoke at the Democratic convention in August, um, this past August. So there, there were, and there were a few Republicans that, that did speak at that convention and campaigned um, for Biden throughout the campaign. So it, it does seem pretty likely that, that at least someone in that group uh, will, will end up with, with some sort of job in the administration. Here's another question about the election aftermath. Hi, Gabe. My name is Otavio Paluch, and I'm from Ontario, Canada. My question is about the Supreme Court. We've heard stuff from the Trump campaign, as well as Republicans, claiming that voter fraud took place during the election and saying that all postal ballots received after Election Day should be disqualified. And they want the Supreme Court to hear their appeal. So how does a case reach the Supreme Court? What would the process be like for the Trump campaign? Thank you. It's a great question, and the answer is there isn't much of a path, really, for the president's uh, legal challenges to election results. They, they've been rejected now at pretty much every level by federal and state judges. Um, dozens of cases have been dismissed um, that, that have been brought by the Trump campaign or by Republican allies attempting to overturn the election results or block states from certifying their results or trying to challenge state election rules, particularly, of course, mail-in voting. Um, and, and there really hasn't been much success that, that the president or his allies have found in the courts. Um, in terms of getting to the Supreme Court, the way that could happen is that once a case reaches the federal appeals court level or the state Supreme Court level, and if, an, and if a judge rules against the Trump campaign on, on either of those levels, then they can appeal to the Supreme Court. Um, and, and actually, as you may know, the president said in the campaign trail repeatedly when he was pushing for Amy Coney Barrett to be confirmed, one of the things he talked about was how important it was for her to join the court so that she could be there for them to hear some of those challenges that he anticipated um, that he'd be bringing after Election Day. Um, the, the problem with that is that there are a few cases that have already made their way up to the Supreme Court um, that Trump's lawyers have appealed there, and so far the justices have chosen not to take up any of them. And so the way that works is that for a case to be heard by the Supreme Court, four justices have to grant what's called a writ of certiori and agree to hear the case. And so far... They haven't agreed to do that, and there's really no sign that any of the justices are likely to do that for any of the president's challenges. So there isn't really much of a legal path for the president to challenge the results. So just to go a little bit farther here, barring any court intervention, the, the next steps in the electoral process are pretty straightforward. Um, as we talked about a few episodes ago, the Electoral College will meet in, in each individual state capital on December 14th, and then Congress 
finalizes the results on January 6th in a joint session. And there are some opportunities, um, obviously, when the Electoral College meets, there, there could be, you know, these faithless electors that, that could throw the election of the president. That's incredibly unlikely. As we talked about in that episode, uh, electors are generally party loyalists. So that would require a, a lot of, you know, de- prominent Democrats or loyal Democrats choosing to vote for, for Donald Trump, which, which is not likely. Um, when it does get to Congress in January, there's also an opportunity for lawmakers to challenge the results as long as at least one House member and at least one senator um, kind of team up to do that. There, there does seem to be some House members that, that are planning to do that. So far, they haven't attracted any senators who have said they will join them, but it is a possibility. But um, you, you would still need that, – that would still then go to a vote in both chambers, and it's incredibly unlikely that the president would generate you know, broad support and, and certainly not a majority in the Democratic-led House and, and probably not even in the Republican Senate either um, to, to, to do that and, and to challenge the results in any of these states. So there isn't much of a path for, for the president at this point in the courts. And then even for what comes next in the Electoral College and in Congress, there's not much of a path there either for, for the president to try to overturn the results of the election. Speaking of the Electoral College, another topic we touched on this season, here's another question we received about it as well. Hi, Gabe. This is Carol Castello from Delaware County, Pennsylvania, a now infamous Collar County of Philadelphia. I'm curious to know what you and other pundits are thinking about the future of the Electoral College. Will it be replaced with a popular vote? How would that happen? Would the Dems need some control? And also the ripple effects if this took place. How would this change the way politicians campaign? and the other changes I can't even think of. So a flat-out repeal of the Electoral College would be pretty hard to do. That would require a constitutional amendment, because the Electoral College is enshrined in the U.S. Constitution. And and as you may know, passing a, a, a constitutional amendment, adding something to the Constitution, is really difficult. And the founders were, were very intentional about making that you know not an easy process. It requires, first, two-thirds majorities in both houses of Congress, which obviously there's not many issues that, that kind of generate that broad support um, in both the House and the Senate. And then not only that, three-fourths of state legislatures also have to approve an amendment. So, so again, it requires really broad support across party lines, across geographic lines. Really, you, you have to have a lot of support across the country. And, and that's not hard. That's not easy to get, which is why it's only happened 27 times in American history that the Constitution has been amended, you know, and, and 10 of which were in the Bill of Rights. So, so really beyond those 10 that, that were passed right at, at the beginning, towards the beginning of the Republic, it's only happened another 17 times. And, and um, so, so, so to do something like repealing the Electoral College would, would, be, would be a pretty difficult task. But there is another side route that, that some people have proposed for kind of getting around the Electoral College. And that's something we talked about in, in our episode about the, about the Electoral College a few months back. And, and so that kind of um, alternative is called the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. And essentially, it would achieve what you're talking about, where, where the popular vote would determine who the president is instead of the Electoral College, without completely getting rid of the Electoral College. It requires state legislatures, because if you remember from that episode, state legislatures, they get to pick how the electors are allocated. And for the most part, most states um, simply allocate them to the winner of of that state's popular vote. But what the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact says is that basically you would have these state legislatures 
promising to throw their electors, th- to, to allocate their electors to, to the candidate that wins the national popular vote majority. So, so in effect, it would ensure that, that the, the national popular vote winner would win the presidency because it only goes into effect once, once enough states that, that um, add up to 270 electoral votes sign on to the compact. If that happens, then it would go into effect, and then you'd have enough states where you know the electoral college wouldn't matter anymore because you have enough electors that 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 are assured to the person who wins the national popular vote. So that has gained some steam in the past few years. Right now, there's 15 states as well as the District of Columbia that that have signed on to the compact. That adds up to 196 electoral votes. So they're still a little bit, you know, some ways away from 270, which is the number that it would need to take effect and to actually, you know, make an impact on on kind of removing the electoral college effectively from the equation. But but it is somewhat close. So that that is a possibility there, and it's probably the best chance that the advocates have of of getting the popular vote to to be the thing that determines that the president nationwide. To answer your other questions. Um, there's no question that would lead to a huge shift in, in how politicians campaign. Um, I, I think, you know, it, for, for one thing, it would just it would really just scramble where politicians are going, where they're sending most of their resources. Um, you know, I think some of the states you see right now, some of the kind of traditional battleground states, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, states like that would have much less much less impact, but because they, they wouldn't be kind of electoral battlegrounds in that same sense. Um, and then on the flip side, you'd see presidential candidates spending a lot more time in, in some of those bigger states where they might have less of a chance of winning, but but they still have large voter bases they might be able to turn out. So you think of Republicans in California and New York um, or Democrats in Texas and Florida, you know, you know, states where they probably wouldn't have targeted before, but because they, they'd have a difficult time getting a majority of that state's vote, but, but they could still maybe draw out, um, you know, people people that that are in that state that that might support them and so it would just entirely scramble the calculus of presidential campaigning as we know it right now campaigns are pretty solely focused on getting 270 electoral votes and that would be thrown out the window it would just be uh, uh, about solely getting you know as many voters as you can nationwide so so it's pretty much a, a completely different game um but you know uh, again that national popular vote interstate compact it's still some ways away from being approved. So uh, unless that happens or unless a constitutional amendment is passed, which again um, is a very difficult path to, to getting one ratified, it, it is pretty likely that the Electoral College will stay here for at least the near future. This next question is about another type of electoral reform. Gabe, please explain ranked choice voting and why a couple states are going to that system. What are the benefits and drawbacks to that type of voting over our current system? This is Mike from Kansas City, Missouri. So this is a super interesting topic, and it's actually something that's been gaining steam in a lot of states um, around the country. And so to kind of explain what ranked choice voting is, so first, you know, right now, the vast majority of elections in the U.S. are run by what's called first-past-the-post voting, which basically means that whoever gets the plurality of votes wins. It's pretty simple. That, that, that's probably how most of you are familiar with elections being run. 
And so ranked choice voting is an alternative to that system, where, where basically voters you know, take their ballot, and you have all of the candidates for a certain office, and they rank you know, one, two, three, four, all of their candidates in order of preference. And so what, what needs to happen is for a candidate to win, they need not only a plurality, but a majority. They need to get above 50%. And the way this happens is through a few rounds of kind of automatic tabulation. So you have the first round, and you know if someone gets above 50% just by first choices, then they win right off the bat. But if no one gets above 50%, as often happens you know, when there's a lot of candidates competing in a race, then the candidate with the least votes is eliminated, and their votes are automatically distributed to whoever their voters picked as their second choice on their ballots. And so that process continues then until someone gets above 50% from either first, second, or so on choices being added up. And so the main pro of ranked choice voting, or RCV as it's known, is that it eliminates the need for what's called strategic voting. And so oftentimes, as many of you are probably familiar with, you know, with first past the post, there might be a third party candidate on the ballot or someone with less of a chance of winning. And you might have voters who, who align with them on a lot of issues, but don't back them because they're, they're afraid of splitting the vote or they're afraid that it's a wasted vote because that candidate isn't going to win. And, and so they end up voting not for that person that they might agree with most, but but for someone that they actually don't agree with as much because they think that person has a better chance of winning or, or they're worried that their real first choice will, will kind of split split the vote and, and that'll lead to someone they really don't want um, um, getting elected. And so what happens with RCV is it allows voters to show their support for that candidate who is truly most aligned with them, but it ensures that it won't be a wasted vote because they can still signal who they support if that first choice is eliminated. And so there isn't that risk anymore of splitting the vote or, or wasting your vote, but because you get to say, you know, if, if your candidate does end up performing poorly, you get to decide where your vote then goes. And so in a more general sense, you know, another pro of this is that it ensures that the candidate who does win office is, is the one who is kind of most broadly acceptable to the most people because they, they need to have at least been enough people's first or second choice for them to be able to cobble together that, that 50% majority. And so that's a, you know, that is a bit of a difference from first past the post, where if you have a lot of candidates running, oftentimes you can have the winner you know, had just a small amount of support and could actually be, you know, in some cases, pretty fiercely opposed by most of the electorate. But because there are so many candidates, that person's able to get by and still win, even with, you know, maybe a small percentage of the vote. And, and that's not possible in ranked choice voting because you need to at least be, you know, a majority of people's first or second choice or as, as many rounds as it takes to, to get above that 50 percent mark. Um, there are some counter arguments to this method as well. Um, a big one is just that it's, it's you know, too confusing of a method. Voters won't know to do what voters won't know what to do with their ballots when they get to their polling places on election day um, if, they, if they're not familiar with the system. And so they'll end up wasting their votes that way um, by, by either not voting, that it could lead to a drop in turnout, or by not knowing what to do, or by you know, you know, voting wrong um, and not you know, actually ranking the candidates as they're supposed to. There's also an argument um, that for the most part has been rejected by, by most courts that have heard it, but, but this is still something of a novel system. So, so there is the, the argument that, that, that it's undemocratic, that you know, it violates the principle we have in the United States of one person, one vote, but because if you have someone's vote being tossed out, um, that that violates that kind of one person, one vote requirement, even though their vote could go 
to, to someone else, but obviously they could choose not to rank the candidates or, or for whatever reason, they, they could decide against, um, you know, indicating who they want their vote to go to in later rounds. And so there's some people that say they're, they're effectively disenfranchised in, in those later rounds. So, so that is one argument against it. Uh, another one is that it has been shown in, in a few studies in, in other countries that use ranked choice voting that, that basically the person with the plurality of first round votes almost all the time just wins anyways. So there's some that say it's not really worth the trouble of changing um, and, and adopting this system if it's going to lead to the same result in a lot of cases, which is true, that, that it often just, just ends up how it probably would have with first past the post. So those are some of the pros and cons. As for the likelihood of it being adopted, um, there's actually two states that use ranked choice voting right now. Um, Maine was the first, and, and they used it. Um, they, they passed it by, by referendum in 2016. So they started using it in the 2018 midterms. And then for the first time in a presidential race in 2020, Maine voted with ranked choice voting. Um, and then Alaska, also in 2020, Alaskan voters approved a referendum that will implement ranked choice voting in Alaska, and that'll start in 2022. So you're already seeing um, some states that, that are gravitating towards ranked choice voting, and there's movements in a lot of other states to, to get referenda on the ballot so so voters can, can choose whether they want um, also to vote by ranked choice voting. And, and there is some momentum in, in some states for those movements. So it's certainly something that, that a lot more people are talking about and, and kind of considering what other ways you could have um, voting run in the U.S. And, and it's certainly a method that, that you could see more states adopting kind of in the months and years to come. This last question is about a topic we covered back in May when we did our Generation Pandemic episode that focused on young voters. Hi, Gabe. My name is Gary Burkholder from 29 Palms, California. And my question for you is, as a member of the next generation of voters, what strategies do you think will be most important in getting younger voters to the polls? Youngest generations have the most voting power, yet young people still don't reliably vote. I think this will be really important, especially with the crises that are looming in our country now. Thank you. So th- that's a great question. Obviously, it's one that, that's really near to my heart, um, you know, and obviously that's something I'm really passionate about, just trying to engage a lot of other young people and other members of my generation um, to, to, to be engaged in politics and to vote. And, and, and for that reason, it was really encouraging to see both in 2018 and then in 2020 record levels of youth voter turnout. We saw huge increases uh, among people in my generation who, who came out to vote um, for the most part for the first time um, in 2020, which was which was really encouraging to see. Um, and, and obviously it was it was my first time voting and, and a lot of people my age as well who um, just just came of age and, and, and you know, where the, the trend has been for, for several decades now that uh, a lot of voters have, have not uh, on their first election when they've been eligible um, cast a ballot. You, you, you saw record record numbers this year. Of, of young voters who did go to the polls and, and did decide to make their voice heard, make their voice heard in the presidential election. Um, but, but obviously there's still a lot more work to be done in terms of engaging young voters, even with the encouraging numbers that we've seen, there's still a lot of young voters that, that stayed home on election day and, and, and that continue to. Um, so, so it's a really important question to be asking how, how can we get more young voters to the polls? I, I think the main thing that, that I think is really important to, to remember is that that I always say that, that I think it's important to just meet young voters where they are. I, I think 
it's just super important to, to you know, I think their campaigns that need to, in some ways, rethink their strategies and, and to not be so wedded to kind of traditional campaign strategies that aren't always so effective in reaching young voters. So, so obviously, digital outreach is hugely important. Um, you know, going to young voters on social media networks, going to, to where young voters are, are talking with their friends or where they're getting news, you know, not just expecting young voters to come to you, but, but to meet them where they are and to really try to reach them on the channels that they're using. Um, for example, Snapchat this year, I, I think over a million voters, they, they, they registered um, through, through a tool on Snapchat. And, and so that's an example of, of you know, tr- trying to, to find out where young voters are spending time and, and, and then going there and, and trying to make the case to them to, to, to register to vote and to participate in elections. I, and then I, I think going along with that, like 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 you said, Gary, you know, I, I think the, the important thing is I, I think there's a lot of young people that I, I hear this all the time when I when I talk to people, you know, my age, not not all certainly, but but there's a lot of young people that just aren't convinced of of the importance of their vote and that, that don't think they have that much voting power and that don't think that, that it's worth it to vote. And the answer, just like you said, is that in fact, if if young people did vote kind of at the rate that that older voters do, that that you know Generation Z and Millennials combined would be the most powerful voting block in the nation. They they would have the most voters if they chose to go out and vote, you know, in kind of full. And you see, but because you see such higher rates of voter turnout among older voters. You see that young voters are essentially kind of ceding that power to older voters and kind of guaranteeing that um, they're guaranteeing that their voice won't be heard and that older voters, you know, their voices will be heard because they're going to vote. So I think it's just about making that case to young people, showing them with the data, with the numbers that we have, that, that as a matter of fact, young people's voices do matter and that they have the ability to shift election results and, and that, you know, like you said, if, if they chose to vote they would be the most powerful voting bloc in the country. So so I think it's just about hitting that message and and just really reminding young people, you know, what what the consequences of elections can be and, and you know, talking about the issues that matter to them. You know, we know that there's a lot of issues that, that really do impact young voters pretty acutely from climate change to student loans. Um, the list goes on and on. And so just to talk about those issues and, and explain to them, you know, if if you don't vote, then then people of older generations will, and so if you want the issues that matter to you to to be to matter and and to make a difference on the national scale, then then you just have to get out and vote on election day. Thank you so much to everyone who sent in questions for this this week's episode. I'm sorry I wasn't able to answer them all, but I hope that that those answers helped um, not only the people that asked them, but but to anyone who might have been curious about some of those issues um, and, and those topics that came up. I, I also, since this is the last episode of the season, I, I just want to express my thanks again to St. Louis Public Radio for for partnering with me this season in working to to bring make the Wake Up to Politics podcast available. Um, specifically, I want to thank Joe Manis, my, my editor, and Aaron Dorr, my engineer, who, who have been working with me um, to, to, to make the podcast happen, and, and I'm really appreciative of both of them. And, and most of all, I, I want to thank you. Um, thank you so much for, for listening 
to, to the podcast, listening to these episodes for engaging, for, for sending me your feedback and sending me your questions. Um, I, I, I really am, am so grateful for, for everyone who listened to the podcast in 2020. Um, and I hope, if you're not already, that you'll sign up for my newsletter at wakeuptopolitics.com. And that, that's where you can, can stay up to date and, and hear more about the future of the Wake Up to Politics podcast as we um, continue in 2021. So I hope everyone has a happy holidays and happy new year. And, and I'll see you in your podcast feed in 2021. Thanks a lot. Gabe Fleischer is the host and creator of Wake Up to Politics. This podcast is a co-production of Gabe Fleischer and St. Louis Public Radio. Joe Manis is the political editor. Sound design and mixing by Aaron Doerr.